You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Jason with Curious About Cannabis. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. So today marks a really big moment for the podcast in that we were on, we are on our 50th behind-the-scenes episode. Uh, really, we've done more than 50 episodes because we have about 10 seasonal episodes uh, on top of the behind-the-scenes episodes, so we've really done about 60, but um, we've hit the halfway point to 100 as far as our uh, interviews go and that sort of thing. And so I wanted to do something a little special for the 50th episode. So what I wanted to do today is um, it's, for the most part, just going to be you and me together here uh, by ourselves. Uh, But earlier last year, I talked to the godfather of cannabis science, Dr. Raphael Meshulam, via email. Um, And we had a nice exchange, and he answered a variety of questions I had, and he expressed interest in coming on the podcast, um, but uh, due to series of different medical issues and things like that. Um, we never were able to quite work out an appearance on the podcast. Um, but through our email exchanges, um, there was a lot of great information that was shared that I thought would be uh, pretty cool to share with you um, and sort of be the closest thing that we could get to having Dr. Mishulam on the podcast itself. And in doing so, we can kind of celebrate, you know, that we, the fact that we've made it halfway to 100 episodes and there's also an accompanying three-hour celebration episode uh, that will go with this that is available on our Patreon at patreon.com slash curiousaboutcannabis. And in that episode, I'm joined with Higher Peaks from Oregon Rooted. It's another local podcast based out of Southern Oregon. Um, we kind of got started around the same time how I got started doing podcasting was appearing on his podcast. And then uh, he ended up helping me out and teaching me what I needed to do to get my podcast going. So it seemed fitting that we get together and do a celebratory episode for the 50th behind the scenes episode. So we got together and just uh, kind of celebrated, kicked back and reflected on, on, uh, on things uh, where, how things have gotten to where they are and where they're going um, it was really, really fun. It went about three hours long. And if you're interested in checking that out, uh, go to our Patreon. It's a great episode if you're wanting to kind of learn more about me personally um, and some of the work that I've done and where I've come from and my own relationship with cannabis, that sort of thing. Um, that's a good episode to check out there. And we'll include a little clip of it at the end of this episode. But um, for our public podcast feed, I wanted to uh, just kind of, um, I guess in some ways, uh, kind of channel Dr. Mishulam here and share with you some of the things that we talked about and see what we learned from it. So without further ado, let's jump in here. So the one of the first things that we talked about is I asked him what we might be able to expect from the future of cannabis and cannabinoid research over the next 10 or 20 years. And one of the things that he said was that he expects that we'll learn a lot more about our uh, our physiology, but also our psychology. And particularly, he mentions molecular psychology. So, you know, what are the molecules that are involved in building up our personalities and 
psychological traits and behaviors. And then they said that he believes that we'll have numerous new cannabinoid drugs because of the remarkable toxicity profile of cannabinoids, the fact that they're so generally non-toxic. Um, he believes that we'll see uh, quite a lot of cannabinoid drugs be developed in the near future. And he also said that he presumes that the activity of a lot of the uh, anandamide-like compounds in the body will be better understood. So in general, what he's referring to here are what are called endocannabinoid congeners, compounds that are very similar to endocannabinoids. Uh, oftentimes they may not have much activity at cannabinoid receptors, but they may have a lot of activity at vanilloid receptors or nuclear receptors and things that influence cannabinoid receptors. And there are tons of these, and I really recommend if you haven't yet, uh, go listen to my episode with Dr. Vincenzo DiMarzo, who worked with Dr. Mishulam to try to understand the endocannabinoid system. And in that episode, he really describes just how complex the concept of the endocannabinoid system has gotten, and he talks about this concept of endocannabinoid congeners and um, kind of what we can think about those uh, for the future. Uh, very, very interesting stuff. And Dr. Mishulam actually mentions the concept of uh, endocannabinoids teaching us about molecular psychology multiple times throughout our conversation here. Um, so I just kind of want to put a, a pin on that that we'll come back to that note. But to summarize, what can we expect to see from the future of cannabis and cannabinoid research over the next 10 or 20 years? Um, get a much better understanding of how our bodies work. Get a better understanding of how our minds work. Um, we'll see a, an outpouring of new cannabinoid-based drugs as a less toxic alternative to a lot of pharma other pre-existing pharmaceuticals. And we will start to understand what a lot of these endocannabinoid congeners are doing in the body, which is presumably then going to lead to more drug development and even better understandings of our physiology and not just the endocannabinoid system, but the endocannabinoid dome. Next thing that we talked about is I asked him uh, at what moment in his career did he begin to really understand the therapeutic significance of the work that he was doing with cannabinoids. And he mentioned that this realization really sank in for him sometime in the late 1970s. And he said particularly what he thinks about his work that he was doing with the late Dr. Carlini in Sao Paulo in the late 1970s when they discovered that CBD was a really good anti-epileptic drug. Um, and it was in that moment of recognizing that the non-intoxicating components of cannabis had such strong therapeutic effects um, that we really began to understand uh, that all of this research with cannabinoids was going to was going to lead to something much bigger than he anticipated. And so that was really fascinating, and I hope to follow up with him about that and talk to him more about that period of time in the 1970s um, and kind of what that was like because the 1970s is an interesting time where you know in the 19 mid 1960s is when uh, Mashulam's team published information basically highlighting that THC was the intoxicating component of cannabis and you start to see a lot of THC research take off then um, and it really wasn't until the late 70s and 80s that you start to see this CBD research start to 
really um, come about as researchers wanted to understand what the potential applications of the non-intoxicating components of cannabis might be. And there had already been a little bit of research on CBD before this point, even going as far back as um, really the early 20th century, the uh, 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, there was CBD research going on then. Um, but the 1970s, we start to see a resurgence of CBD research that's kind of confirming some old findings and uh, and then starting to take the science further and try to understand how CBD works in comparison to THC. Um, so that's a, a nice, cool little snapshot of history there. The next question I asked him was, what was the most surprising or counterintuitive thing that he learned in all of his years studying cannabis and cannabinoids? And this might have been surprising to me several years ago, but now I don't find it too surprising. But he said, when you're on to something totally new, the scientific administrators and many colleagues may say that that's not true or your data should not be supported um, you know, basically uh, kind of trying to deny the new narrative that's being put together by the the data you're presenting. And uh, it, this is something we all struggle with, right? That when we kind of have our body of information that we've learned and the way we understand things to work, when something comes along that kind of bucks against that, it's uncomfortable and we tend to resist accepting it until we don't have a choice anymore. And so Dr. Mishulam was just sharing that um, he didn't necessarily expect that kind of response from especially the scientific community that in general should be open to uh, new ideas, new information, that sort of thing. And uh, maybe he kind of underestimated how uh, resistant people would be to accepting what he had to share. The next question that I asked him was, what areas of current cannabis and cannabinoid research do you find the most interesting and why? And he said, primarily, he's really focused on understanding what all of these anandamide-like compounds are doing in the body, these endocannabinoid congeners. And, you know, what we're coming to understand as novel endocannabinoids, these omega-3 fatty acid-derived endocannabinoids and other omega-6 fatty acid-derived endocannabinoids, there's a lot more to the endocannabinoid system than anandamide and 2-AG. And what he pointed out in our, um, in our conversation about this is he said that we've already seen that arachidonyl serine is a vasodilator and can maybe reduce brain damage, you know, especially in situations like um, concussions, traumatic brain injuries, that sort of thing. Uh, he mentioned that oleoserine is an anti-osteoporotic, so possibly influencing uh, bone health and that sort of thing. And then he mentioned that oleoglycine is an anti-nicotine agent, that it could possibly help with addiction, that it can block both nicotine and opioid withdrawal, and that research for all of these things that he's mentioning are all published. And so it's, um, you know, really more a question of how do we push forward on clinical work to try to understand how to best take advantage of these activities. 
Um, and that's just, you know, a few of these novel anandamide-like compounds. Uh, and there are a lot more. Um, so we're really just scratching the surface here. But that was the main thing that he focused on is just trying to understand all of these nuanced activities that are influencing the endocannabinoid system and expanding our focus well beyond 2-AG, anandamide, THC, CBD. The picture is so much more complicated. The next question I asked was, what are three... What are two or three common misunderstandings about cannabis and cannabinoids that you frequently encounter? And he mentioned two things. One is that he still runs into the idea that cannabis is as addictive as opioids are, when in reality, according to most of the published literature, it seems like, um, you know, addiction in cannabis use, you know, maybe is something that 10% of users at most deal with. And really... Addiction may not even be the best word because there are different types of um, of addiction. Uh, different types of dependence would really be a better, maybe a better term. And uh, the rate of cannabis addiction that nine ten percent that often gets quoted is about equal to what you would expect in something like uh, shopping addiction or an addiction to working out or a, a, an eating disorder. Uh, that sort of thing, gambling addiction. And um, these are behavioral addictions more so than like chemical addictions to, you know, like you would see in nicotine for cigarette smoking or with opioids, or, uh, cocaine, other drugs of abuse like that. Um, and so certainly cannabis is not as addictive as alcohol, opioids, all of that sort of thing. But you can be addicted to just about any behavior, and we do see that in, you know, usually the number I see is 9%. Um, he mentions 10% here of the addiction rates associated with cannabis. It is something that people do sometimes have trouble discontinuing their use, and if their use is causing them to forego responsibilities and obligations that they care about and um, and that they're preoccupied when they don't want to be with thinking about using and, um, you know, working with things that remind them of using, you know, and, and they want to stop that behavior and they can't, you know, that's problematic. And, you know, that is a real thing for some people. The good thing is that cannabis's uh, withdrawal effects are relatively mild compared to most uh, substances of abuse. So discontinuing use is not um, life-threatening or anything like that. Um, it can cause sleep uh, disorders, depression, um, disruption to appetite. Those are some of the most common withdrawal symptoms. And then he said he also still runs into the idea that cannabis causes brain damage, which he points out it does not. And um, that's one that I still run into as well sometimes. And a lot of times when people are saying that cannabis causes brain damage, they're uh, sort of disingenuously misrepresent, misrepresenting some of the research. Because there is some research that shows that chronic cannabis use or chronic uh, CB1 receptor activation can lead to changes in the brain. It changes the way the brain functions. It changes some of the structures in the brain. Now, saying that something causes changes to a brain is different than saying that something causes brain damage 
which implies that the changes are leading to some malfunctioning of the brain. Now, one of the main areas where this um, sort of more straightforward is in the context of memory. Long-term cannabis use can cause changes to the hippocampus and alter the way that the brain uh, recalls memories. Now, uh, so far, all of the negative effects of cannabis, like some of these uh, brain changes and everything, um, as far as we can tell, seem to be reversible. Some of the research on that is really hard to um, do to the level that we would like to see it. Um, but most of what's been studied shows that a lot of these effects are reversible and that certainly long-term cannabis users, um, there are many, many people that are very, very intelligent um, that continue to use cannabis frequently. And cannabis certainly doesn't cause um, like brain atrophy um, which is really what I start to think about when I think about real brain damage, like actual reduction of brain mass and uh, sort of brain atrophying, uh, which then leads to all sorts of other problems. It could be life-threatening. Uh, no, cannabis does not do that at all. Next question that um, I asked him, this was one I was really interested to get his response for. In your years observing the behaviors of different cannabinoids, are you able to predict a compound's activity at a cannabinoid receptor or a vanilloid receptor, etc., based on its molecular characteristics? And if so, what kinds of patterns have you noticed? And one thing he said is that he's noticed that cannabinoids that have three completed rings in their molecular structure, which would be called a tricyclic cannabinoid, three circles, tricyclic, um, that they tend to be THC-like. They tend to have activity at CB1 receptors, whereas cannabinoids that only have two complete rings, or are otherwise known as bicyclic, like CBD, tend to have more activity at vanilloid receptors, uh, like TRPV1 receptors. And in general, these cannabinoids tend to not have much affinity at all for traditional cannabinoid receptors. Now, something we didn't talk about at the time that I wish we would have, and I ought to follow up with him and ask about this, is what about monocyclic cannabinoids like CBG? That's uh, one of the more interesting things, I think, um, about TH comparing THC, CBD, and CBG is that THC is tricyclic, CBD is bicyclic, and CBG is monocyclic. And uh, you would expect that that would have some substantial impacts in their pharmacology, how they interact with the body. Um, but in general, um, Dr. Moshulam focused on this idea that uh, you can often predict to some degree the activity of a cannabinoid based on uh, the number of completed um, rings in the molecular structure. If you've got three rings, it's usually THC-like, and you can look up a lot of synthetic um, THC-like molecules, a lot of the synthetic cannabinoids that were put into uh, products like Spice and K2, um, these synthetic CB1 agonists, a lot of times they have three uh, molecular rings or more. And then this idea that bicyclic cannabinoids are, act, tend to act more like vanilloids. Very interesting. Uh, the next thing I asked him is, how do you personally conceptualize the endocannabinoid system in the endocannabinoid dome? 
And he said to him, they are definitely major new biological systems, um, just as significant as the dopaminergic and serotonergic systems in the body, um, which I, I definitely agree with. And ultimately, you know, he highlights that the endocannabinoid system is part of this series of interconnected systems. And, you know, we're still trying to wrap our heads around how these systems function independently and in concert with each other, uh, which makes them ever more complicated to study and more exciting. And um, I asked him, how do you hope to see endocannabinoid system research impact medicine in the future? And he said, primarily going back to his responses to the first question, um, he hopes to see that ECS research is going to lead to safer medicines, uh, broader uh, options of medicines that are available, cannabinoid medicines that are less toxic um, and less damaging to the human body. And then finally, I asked him, what do you most hope people will understand and take away from your work? And he said uh, he assumes that most scientists will understand why the things that he's mentioned so far are important, why uh, understanding the activity of anandamide-like compounds is important, and why um, you know, getting a better understanding of the endocannabinoid system is going to lead to safer drugs and that sort of thing. Um, but he said beyond that, he also hopes that uh, people start to understand the role that the endocannabinoid system plays in the variability of personality and of individual emotions. And if you stop and think about it, this really makes sense. Um, it's obvious that cannabinoids affect uh, personality and um, our emotions and everything. I mean, just look at what THC does to people. Um, certainly has a strong effect on the psyche. Um, but it also kind of opens up this doorway to try and understand what these endogenous compounds in the body are doing to uh, lead to these patterns of behavior, patterns of thoughts and feelings that we tend to associate with our personalities and with our psyches. And especially when you start to think about how interconnected uh, the endocannabinoid system is with the serotonergic system, for instance, that a lot of times you see serotonin receptors and cannabinoid receptors paired up together as heteromers. And so the activity at one is affecting the activity at the other and vice versa. And we know through psychedelic research that serotonin uh, in the serotonergic system is a huge part of um, building our experience of the world and contributing to uh, all sorts of characteristics of consciousness and things. Um, and so if it's, you know, really woven together with the endocannabinoid system, then it follows and makes perfect sense that the endocannabinoid system would be a huge part of the um, molecular machinery underneath our psychology. So super, super fascinating stuff. Uh, that's the majority of what we talked about. Um, I do plan on reaching out to him again and asking some more questions. I was really stoked to see that he managed to see my podcast appearance on Brave New Weed recently, talking about Delta-8 THC, 
I was very, very pleased that uh, somehow that episode made it to him. Um, maybe he'll end up catching this episode of Curious About Cannabis. Um, but that's about all I have to give you from Dr. Mashulam himself right now. If you have questions that you'd like me to ask Dr. Mashulam, uh, feel free to send them, and I'm happy to reach out to him again and ask some questions and uh, see if he responds. He was very, very polite and nice uh, when I reached out to him before, so um, I would expect he'll probably, as long as he's got the time and energy to do it, he'll probably be happy to answer more questions. So anyways, with that, um, that's you know my little special treat here for our 50th episode. Uh, the next thing that I'll give you here is we'll transition into a little clip from our three-hour uh, celebration episode that's available on Patreon. And just to remind you, you can find that episode at patreon.com slash curiousaboutcannabis. And uh, yeah, go check it out and celebrate with us and hang out with us. And uh, we'll be back next week with a normal behind-the-scenes interview episode um, we're going to be uh, bringing you an episode with Alicia Ratliff talking all about um, issues around scaling extraction facilities and trying to do it in a sustainable manner. We also have an episode coming up with um, Bryant Mason of Soil Doctor Consulting. We're going to talk all about soil science. Um, we've got, uh, quite a few other interviews that are in the works that are coming down the pipeline, uh, that I'll be announcing really soon that I'm excited to share with you all. So thanks so much for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed this little clip from the three hour celebration. Check out our Patreon to listen to the whole thing and I'll catch you guys next week. Stay curious and take it easy. And so during Katrina, uh, because we had other family living with us, I uh, was tucked away on this little like army cot um, in my dad's office with, you know, basically just didn't have a room anymore mm -hmm. or really any space. So the space I carved out for myself was in my mind. Mm -hmm. And so I spent a lot of time listening to music and particularly listening to albums that I could, you know, get an experience out of that were purposefully made as concept yeah. albums and things to really you know, change your consciousness. And um, so it was around that time that that's when I decided I wanted to try cannabis. Cause then I was like, I want to understand what that experience is like and how, it, you know, obviously all of these people that I respect as musicians and stuff have experimented sure. with these things. So what's that about? So 16, 17, try that. I remember I was at a high school football game and uh, my friend comes to me, he's like, Hey dude, you want to get stoned? And I was like, yes, I do. I do want to get stoned. <laughs> yes. I, I would like to get stoned. And so we, <laughs> and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. At that point, at that point I'd grown out of the anti-drug thing had become super hippie and, um, a total transformation. Um, and that was, like I said, before any, any, uh, substance use was involved. And a lot of people at my high school thought that I was doing psychedelics and using cannabis and stuff like way before I ever did crazy um, just because of what you yeah, what you were doing what i was doing yeah, yeah i was just into all of that kind of stuff and that's where my mind was at um so yeah we disappeared go have a bonfire nice and, oh beautiful yeah yeah man and just great um, experience yeah just sat around this bonfire and smoked you know two bowls i think and 
That's tough um, for a beginner. Yeah, but you know, this is like Brick the, weed. the shittiest of shitty weed. We're like, talking like that tire weed. I mean, like brown, really, like it always brown. smells like coffee because it's been stored in coffee grounds. And, yeah. You know, you see the brick. You know, like the, corners in yeah, your bag and we stuff. call it the brown frown because it was just like sometimes you're just like uh <laughs> yeah but you know that's what we had and um yeah i mean we definitely i definitely experienced something then but i had no context to put it in um and so you know i got high but i couldn't it was way different than what i experienced now just because i had no frame of reference right. in my brain was sort of like i don't know what to do with this um but then I didn't really, I used cannabis then that one time and then maybe one time a year later and then I was like, okay, that was interesting. And then that was just sort of on pause for a while um, where I was like really more interested in psychedelics. Um, I found psychedelics to be much more interesting and, and had like more to, that I maybe had more to gain from them. So I just sort of put cannabis in my mind on a shelf and well, you just had edibles yet, man. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, that can be... That can be psychedelic for sure. Wow. You just got to be careful with that. But I got two questions for you. First yeah. of all, I want you to tell me, you know, how do you use it as medicine? How does it mm-hmm. work for you to make you feel better? And here's... I just got to say this before you answer this question, is that organ rooted is all about psychoactives. Mm-hmm. I mean, caffeine, all there's, there's so much stuff out there yeah. and we manipulate our bodies and our minds with this stuff. Mm-hmm. And we've had a relationship with this stuff since the beginning of whenever. And I believe just an opinion that it's had an effect on our evolution. Mm-hmm. So I really think that as long as you have a good relationship with whatever it is, yeah. uh, that it can be beneficial. Um, but I do want to know how it does work for you. And then also, can we get into psychoactives? Yeah, definitely. I mean, not psychoactives, but psychedelics? Yeah, I mean, perfect. so this this will all segue really well. Okay. Um, because, you know, like I said, I kind of put cannabis on a shelf. And when I came back to it, um, it certainly wasn't purely, you know, therapeutic. Um, there was a very large recreational aspect involved once I was in college and everything. But also when I was in college is when I started to understand that I had some mental health issues um, also, when I was a teenager, I was a skateboarder. I thrashed my back multiple, Ooh. like I slammed my spine on a rail. Like, That's a multiple tough times. sport. It's a tough sport. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I cracked my tailbone. I wouldn't go to the doctor. So, like, every Couldn't time sit I sit down for six months, it, it was <laughs> one of the worst pains. Like, there was no position you could get in. Definitely yeah. couldn't sit down or yep. lay down. Yep. Um, but, um, yeah, I was very stubborn. I wouldn't go to the doctor. I would just kind of get through it. So, I didn't ever get scans or anything done on any of that i have a scar i can actually show you on my leg where one time uh, so my friends they tended to like get their uh, parents like make them ramps uh you know that we would skate on and so one of my friends had this quarter pipe um in his front yard and um you know it was really really fun but it didn't have so many safety features and so at one point i kind of hit it a little too fast and I flew past the coping off the ramp and kind of spun around. And when I came down, my leg just grinded against the corner of the wood on the other side of the ramp. And it just shaved my leg. Like, Ooh. it's flat. Like, Ugh. you can look at it now. Took, and it's some, just, took some meat. Yes. It was very – that's another one of, like, the worst pains I've ever felt. So I thrashed my body a lot in my teenage years as a skateboarder. I was also one of those that was jumping off of, you know, rooftops and, 
you know, we'd skate off of rooftops, jump into pools, you know, uh, that same friend that had that quarter pipe, he had a six foot half pipe in his backyard. And so, you know, doing ridiculous stuff that, mm -hmm. uh, we had no conception that there would be lifelong consequences for, um, you don't in your twenties. <laughs> no. And so, um, when I'm in college, I'm starting to realize that like, fucked up a little bit like yeah. my back really hurts and yeah. also like i'm getting super super depressed and occasionally doing kind of crazy things and right. i don't know why and so in my early early 20s is when i'm starting to go to therapy starting to finally like go see doctors and uh finally get mris on my back and they're like hey do you know you have cysts all along your spine and Ooh. by the way you've got three bulging discs oh and, man you know all these different things. And like, also you're like 22 and we don't want to do <laughs> surgery on you because that might make it worse. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I ended up going through a series of drug trials and some of my, even some of my closest friends don't even know about this. Cause I just, it was just what I was doing in my personal life. And I didn't really talk about it that much at the, at the time I felt a little weird about it, but, um, you know, I got put on steroids for a while to see how that would affect the back pain. Um, I got put on antidepressants for a while. I got put on all um, that stuff can it's just crazy. Like it can change you like substantially. Yeah. Steroids. Whew. Yeah. I mean, the steroids thing, I, looking back on, it, I'm just like, I don't understand what the point was. I'm sure it was an investigatory thing of like yeah. trying to see, OK, based on how he reacts, we'll have some better sense of what's going on. But um I mean, I went through the ringer, all sorts of different um, drugs that I was put on. Luckily, my doctor uh, would never put me on on opiates um, because, you know, there was some awareness at that time um, among depends better, on the better doctor. doctors. Yeah, well, it depends that on the doctors. Some some mm -hmm. doctors will just slang pills all day. Right. Yeah. Um, and luckily, this wasn't one of them. Otherwise, I probably would have gotten addicted to mm. opiates and had that whole um, pathway. But um, you know, we finally kind of realized that, um, a lot of the drugs I was trying were not going to help my back. Um, and that surgery was going to be a gamble, but if I, um, increased my movement, you know, hiked more, and then I figured out if I used cannabis regularly, then my back spasms would stop mm -hmm. and everything would relax enough that I would go through my days, not thinking so much about the pain right and it would also make the moments where i'm uh like going on these hikes and everything um easier and so it created a basically a feedback loop that mm -hmm. was really really helpful simultaneously i'm going through therapy trying to figure out what's going on with my mind and <laughs> realizing that like oh I might be bipolar and then there might be a little ptsd mixed in there and uh maybe some adhd or mm -hmm. not adhd but add mixed in there which okay. bipolar and add often appear together sure. anyway but so i'm wrestling with all of that and then realizing that and i don't recommend this to people um but for me my personal story i found that cannabis helped balance the mental health stuff too like it was it provided a consistent uh, uh frame of consciousness that was reliable that i could mm -hmm. always go to that if i was slipping into a deep depression or getting into a manic state that once again this isn't true for everyone but for me uh, it brought me back to some you know consistent homeostasis yeah and um so it just started to piece that together and, um, you know, in my mid twenties came out of the other side with, you know, getting to what you're kind of talking about, this matured relationship with cannabis that, mm -hmm. you know, figuring out how it helped, how it didn't help, 
you know, this is when I started to realize like, okay, um, I need to use cannabis really just at night mm-hmm. so that um, I'll still get the benefits the next day. Right. Um, but I won't be foggy or, you know, um, I'll be able to perform better because so much of my work is about my mind. And, yeah, absolutely. You know, and so, you know, that all really comes together and I start to figure out what my relationship with cannabis really looks like. And then, you know, up to more modern days, you know, thinking about, okay, I'm about to have a kid. Like what's, how do I communicate my relationship with cannabis to my kid? That's tough. Um, That's tough. And and especially with society, you know, yes. I mean, it's, it's harder because of just the The construct, yeah, the outward pressure and perceptions. If it were just you and your family, like it'd be, you could, it wouldn't be that stressful. And we, we've talked about this, Jason, it's education. You know, Mm -hmm. you, you, you're not, it's all about education and you know, like it's funny that you can go to a barbecue and everybody can have a beer Yeah. and then you smoke a bowl and all, all of a sudden, sudden. it's like, oh, <laughs> you're a drug addict or something. I've always wondered about that, you know? And I'm like, so what society deems, you know, okay and not okay really is crazy. I it's, it's absolutely crazy. And that's something that has really affected my outlook on the world quite a bit because I, once I recognized that this was going to be a permanent part of my life, you know, that like, I'm probably going to be using cannabis in some form till the day I die. Because right now, until there are medical advances or something that change things, like this is the best, um, you know, quality of life I've been able to build for myself. And I've tried so many angles at this yeah and point. it's a it's a least side effects right I mean, exactly you, i mean you that's know? a huge I mean, part of it like what you might get tired if you're new you might get the munchies if you're new to it you might get you know dry mouth or dries or whatever but i mean it's it's nothing compared to you may experience a heart attack <laughs> you know if you get the shakes then you're gonna have parkinson i mean it's like you know it, and it's you know it's and it's getting back to nature it's getting back to where we were disconnected well, yeah, it's about finding, you know, it's sort of like the least harm principle, trying to find something that in the lowest dose with the least amount of side effects that has got the, the best safety profile um, to improve quality of life. And and that's what I feel like I've done. And getting to what you want to get to next, cannabis is part of that, but psychedelics are also a part of that for me. Um, cause I am someone that, you know, generally at least once a year, mm-hmm. um, I like to have, you know, a very mindful, uh, planned, you know, yes. therapy session with, with psychedelics.